Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be the pregame and postgame analyst for the New York Yankees? We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 41 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge Sports Podcast is available about 48 hours after the initial showing, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this installment of The Bridge. If anything, you can call in or text the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. This week's question that I'm posing to you listeners is, which baseball teams do you think will move on past the divisional rounds and into the championship series? October baseball is underway. We had our first wild card matchup on Tuesday night. We will have our second on Wednesday night, and we'll get into the official start of the playoffs over the weekend. But until we get to that, first things first, let's get into the fun stuff. Sound the horn. The NFL offseason never ceases to disappoint when it comes to poor decisions and questionable off-field antics of its players during their time off. The Denver Broncos, fresh off winning Super Bowl 50, found themselves at the forefront of some negative publicity from one of its star defensive players. And no, it wasn't from winning the MVP in the Super Bowl. It's time for the best sports anchor parody in the business. Here's this week's sports news read like real news. Denver Broncos cornerback Akeem Tlaib put himself into exclusive company with his quick trigger finger over the summer. On June 5th, Tlaib made headlines after reports of him being shot in the early morning quickly spread. On the morning of the incident, Tlaib suffered a gunshot wound to his lower right leg while in Dallas. He reportedly told police he was at the park when the shooting happened, but said he was too intoxicated to remember who shot him. 
a witness had also said he had been with Tlaib and a large group of people in the park when he heard one gunshot, found Tlaib bleeding on the ground, and took him to the hospital. Tlaib did not need surgery, but did not travel with the Broncos to their White House visit to celebrate winning Super Bowl 50. Rumors would spread that Tlaib was indeed the one who shot his load, I mean his loaded gun, striking his leg. Finally, after a four-month investigation, the Dallas Police Department determined that Tlaib was indeed the culprit of the premature pistol popping. Tlaib now joins the likes of former New York Giants wide receiver Plexico Burris, when the Glock he was carrying in his jeans inadvertently fired prematurely while at a nightclub in New York City. Burris was suspended for the last four games of the season for conduct detrimental to the team and later spent 20 months behind bars. For now, Tlaib has not received any discipline from the Denver Broncos or the NFL, and has been able to be a strong force in Denver's bulletproof defense so far this season. He's been able to shut down any quarterbacks with a cannon of an arm, and even quarterbacks working out of the shotgun. The NFL will continue to investigate and a possible suspension may occur, but for now, Tlaib is focused on bringing the heat on the field instead of packing heat in his pants. I'm John Lund for Sports News Red Like Real News. Let's take a quick break to keep our sponsors on our good side. When we come back, we've got a group of people as the stars of Wait, Who? We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. There's no argument that Atlanta Falcons wide receiver Julio Jones is one of the best in the National Football League at his craft. He made history this past Sunday but not all of the company that he now keeps in the record books are notable names. Let's get to know the other five players with more than 300 receiving yards in a single game in NFL history in this week's... Wait, who? After he was held to just one catch the game before, Atlanta Falcons wide receiver Julio Jones entered his Week 4 game against the Carolina Panthers, looking to gain back some respect. He did so in a big way, setting the franchise record with 300 receiving yards on just 12 receptions while adding a 75-yard touchdown catch and run. The Falcons won the game, 48-33. The 27-year-old led the NFL in receiving yards last year, and his 300-yard game certainly helped his cause for this season. It was the sixth time in NFL history a receiver had at least 300 yards receiving in the game, and the first since former Detroit Lions wide receiver, Calvin Johnson, had 329 yards against the Dallas Cowboys on October 27, 2013. Now. We all remember Megatron, 
But can you name the other four receivers? Stephon Page? Jim Benton? Cloyce Box? Willie, Flipper, Anderson? Wait. Who? Cloyce Box had 302 receiving yards for the Detroit Lions against the Baltimore Colts in 1950. He played at the end and halfback positions for five seasons with Detroit from 1949 to 1950 and 1952 to 1954, after missing a year to serve in the Marines. After his rookie season, he was quoted as saying, I probably was the worst halfback in the history of the league. In the game against the Colts the following year on December 3, he set Detroit team records with 12 catches. Four touchdown receptions, 24 points, and the 302 receiving yards. In 1952, Box was the leading receiver on the Lions team that won the NFL championship, and was selected by the AP as a first-team All-Pro player. The Lions won their second consecutive championship the following year, but Box saw significant decline in his receiving stats reportedly robbed of his blinding speed by a leg injury. In his final year in the NFL, he caught just six passes for 53 yards. He died at the age of 70 in 1993. Jim Benton of the Cleveland Rams did one yard better than Box, with 303 receiving yards against the Lions in 1945. Benton was selected for the NFL 1940s All-Decade team and was the first to gain more than 300 yards in a game. He had a nine-year career all with the Cleveland, and then Los Angeles, Rams from 1938 to 1947, except for one year with the Chicago Bears in 1943. When he retired in 1947, Benton was the second-leading receiver in pro football history with 288 receptions for 4,801 yards and 45 touchdowns. He also played in two world championships, in 1943 with the Bears, and 1945 with the Cleveland Rams. He led every major receiving category in the NFL at least once. Though he retired almost 65 years ago, he still remains in the top 10 in receiving and scoring categories for the Rams. In 2010, ESPN.com rated Jim Benton's 10 catches for 303 yards on Thanksgiving Day against the Lions as the greatest regular season receiving performance in NFL history. Jim died in 2001 at the age of 84. Next on the list is Stephon Page, the lead guitarist for famed rock band Led. Oh. I'm sorry, wrong page. Stephon Page played for the Kansas City Chiefs from 1983 to 1992, with a final year in 1993 with the Minnesota Vikings. On December 22, 1985, Page had 309 receiving yards on just eight catches with two touchdowns against the San Diego Chargers, which broke the NFL record at the time. In fact, some would say he still technically holds the record, since it was done in regulation. Between 1985 and 1991, Page had at least one reception for 83 consecutive games, a team record until it was broken in 2006 by tight end Tony Gonzalez. Page is 54 and married with three children. Last but not least, the record holder, 
Flipper Anderson. Anderson played for the LA Rams from 1988 to 1994, then the Indianapolis Colts in 1995, the Washington Redskins in 1996, and the Super Bowl champion Denver Broncos in 1997. In Week 12 of the 1989 season with the Rams, Anderson broke the NFL record for most receiving yards and yards from scrimmage in a game, with 336 yards on 15 receptions against the new Orleans Saints. Some put an asterisk next to the record however. The game went into overtime. After four quarters, Flipper was only at 296 yards. The Rams won on a game-winning field goal from barefooted kicker, Mike Lansford. Anderson finished his career with 267 receptions for 5,357 yards and 28 touchdowns. Nicknamed Flipper as a baby by a relative who thought his crying made him sound like the famous dolphin, Anderson is 51 and has six children. So, to make a long story short, who can say that they're just a little bit better than wide receiver Julio Jones? Flipper Anderson, Calvin Johnson, Stephon Page, Jim Benton, and Cloyce Box, that's who. In the wild card game between the Baltimore Orioles and the Toronto Blue Jays, a horrendous managerial decision ends the Baltimore Orioles season and puts the Toronto Blue Jays in a rematch with the Texas Rangers in the divisional series in the American League. Also playing in the ALDS are the Boston Red Sox and the Cleveland Indians. On the National League side, the Los Angeles Dodgers will play the Washington Nationals, and the Chicago Cubs will either play the San Francisco Giants or the New York Mets in a game to be decided Wednesday night with the amazing pitching matchup of Madison Bumgarner for the Giants and Noah Thor Syndergaard for the New York Mets. So again, I ask you loyal listeners to call in or text into the show at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Let me know who you think will be moving on to the ALCS and NLCS and why. And let me know what you thought of Buck Showalter's decision to leave Zach Britton the best closer in Major League Baseball on the bench let's take a quick break so our sponsors stay on our good side when we come back we'll talk to jack curry of the s network who will give some final thoughts on the new york yankees we'll be right back on the bridge keeping you connected with all things sports it was a pleasure to get to talk to this week's guest, Jack Curry of the Yes Network. He is the pregame and postgame analyst. He is also the host of Jack Curry TV, which features interviews with some of the biggest names in sports, entertainment, and the media. You can find that on yesnetwork.com. You can also find several of his writings on yesnetwork.com. 
He was also the Yankees beat writer and then the national baseball writer for the New York Times for about two decades. We get into anything and everything you can imagine with the New York Yankees season for 2016, including his final thoughts, the Andrew Miller, Araldis Chapman, Carlos Beltran trades, Mark Teixeira's retirement, Alex Rodriguez's retirement, the job manager Joe Girardi was able to do with the team this season how the younger players were able to provide some excitement into the month of September and what the team might need to do in order to improve in 2017. As I said, it was a pleasure to get to talk some baseball with Jack. He was incredibly insightful. We hope to get him back on the show in the future so he can talk about his career. But until then, everything you need to know about the 2016 Yankees is right here, right now. Without further ado, let's get into that interview. I'm here with Jack Curry. He's the pregame and postgame analyst on the Yes Network for the Yankees. He is also a former New York Times writer for about two decades or so, and he's been kind enough to join the show. Jack, how are you today? I'm doing well, John. How about yourself? I'm doing great. We're a day removed from the Yankees, unfortunately, having an end to their regular season. But in typical media fashion, here we are talking about it before the dust really even gets to settle, before you're able to go on vacation and enjoy yourself for a little bit of time. Let me open things pretty nondescriptively at first and just ask you what your final thoughts were of this season for the Yankees. It's interesting, John, because you can't really talk about this season as if you're talking about one team. It almost feels as if this season had a couple of different chapters, so to speak, for the Yankees, because there's the team that played to a 500 record, 52-52 and or something like that, and that caused the front office to say, you know what, the team that we assembled and that we thought could contend for a postseason isn't doing that. It's better for the organization going forward to trade some of these players, get younger, pile up some prospects in the farm system, and see what the future holds. And I don't have to explain to you, they did that. Miller, Chapman, Beltran gone. Nova, who though he doesn't have the name value or the, the production of those three players, another starter who was traded. And lo and behold, they they make those changes. A guy named Gary Sanchez shows up, and a team that I think a lot of people thought was out of it suddenly squeezed its way back into it. And what I tell friends of mine who are Yankee fans, and they don't often want to hear this because they want to win. They want their team to win. The Yankees turned around and gave their fans about five or six weeks of excitement in, in August and September that's that I right. don't think well, I don't think that was expected. So that's why I'm giving you a, a longer answer to your question that I think there was a team that was a 500 team for about 110 games or so. Then there was a team that was one of the best teams in the American League for about five or six weeks. And then you got to the middle of September, and that team hit a wall. They had a 3-11 and 11 stumble that really hurt them. And I think more than anything, you point to that four-game sweep against the Red Sox. It seems a little crazy to say this now, but on September 15th, they were one out away from Dellen Batanza's closing out a save against the Red Sox, which should be a given. Had they done that that night, they would have been three games behind the Red Sox in the division. Not the wild card, three games out in the division. We all know Ramirez, Hanley Ramirez, it's a three-run homer. The Yankees get swept to those four games. And I think when you recap their season, that that weekend in Boston is going to be their, their epitaph. 
entering this season, I know a lot of emphasis was put on the pitching staff that we mentioned, and specifically the bullpen with Araldis Chapman, Andrew Miller, and Dellen Batanzas closing out games. You almost got the sense that it was going to be a six-inning game for opponents because if they weren't able to get to the starting pitching, once you put in that bullpen, it was pretty much lights out. But as the season went on, that starting pitching didn't necessarily live up to what would have made that bullpen even more successful than it already was. Could you pinpoint maybe some of where the struggles came for the starting rotation and why that grand experiment wasn't necessarily as successful as people hoped it would be coming into the season? John, it's interesting because they relied on some younger pitchers with big arms, and I'm talking about Pineda, Evaldi, and Severino. Right. And if folks don't think Pineda and Evaldi are young, look, look up their dates of birth. They're, they're both 26, 27 years old, Severino 22. And these guys struggled. Severino, right off the bat, he was not a mystery to batters anymore. His, his fastball-slider combination wasn't fooling anyone. He, his fastball's pretty straight, so it's not something that's going to – it can overpower some hitters, but it also can be something that hitters can can square up. He wasn't throwing enough changeups. I think Ivaldi and Pineda are still two pitchers who are learning to make adjustments. I, I work with David Cohn, so I talk to him a lot about pitching, and I love picking his brain. And He talked about how every pitch was a grind, and every pitch you have to think about what the hitter is doing, what the situation is. There are times where it's better to throw a ball, Cohn would say. There are times where you don't want a guy to hit a pitch. And I, I would have Cohn's thoughts ringing in my head as I watch some of these, other, some of these guys like Pineda and Evaldi. And I'm not a pitching coach. I'm not a major league pitcher. But I've talked to enough pitchers to see sometimes where there are lapses in concentration, maybe a lack of focus. And I think I saw some of that this year, especially with Pineda. This is a guy who led the American League in strikeouts per nine innings, had an unbelievable swing and miss percentage. He fools batters repeatedly, yet he gets into trouble with two strikes. He gets into trouble with two outs. And to me, at a certain point, that, that's got to be lack of focus and lack of concentration. So I, I think that that, as you just said, you pinpointed it. When you have trouble with your starting pitching, and you have a great bullpen, you're not able to use one of the greatest strengths on your team, and, and that's what happened to the Yankees. They weren't able to use – Chapman wasn't there for the first month, but they weren't able to use those guys as often as they probably would have liked, and they started off something like 9-17, and 17, and that start really, really put them – really buried them and made them climb all year long. And then the injuries to the starting rotation as the season went on certainly didn't help. And you mentioned this year's team being a tale of two teams, if you will. And one of the biggest storylines people will take away was the moves that the Yankees made at the trade deadline when the season was at that crossroads. Chapman ends up going to Chicago. Miller goes to Cleveland. Beltran goes to Texas. And at the time, you can argue those were really their three biggest pieces for the team at the time. But it was almost like the move needed to be done. When that first came about and they started trading away those pieces to get back some insurance in return, what were your thoughts initially about what they were doing at that point and getting rid of those big pieces that they had at the time? John, I thought Chavin was always going to be traded. When, when they started to show that they were a 500 team, I thought that the Chapman won was pretty much a no-brainer. You, you look at what a top-flight relief pitcher who can come in and get strikeouts like him 
would get you on the market. And the fact that you only had him for the rest of this year, that didn't surprise me. I wondered about Beltran, if that was somebody they thought they could hold on to because their offense struggled so much. But I think they also thought the same thing with Beltran, that at this point, he's a free agent after this year. They weren't going to make him a qualifying offer, most likely. That would mean he'd be a $17 million a year player next year. But one that surprised me was Miller. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I said on our pregame and postgame a few times, Miller would be the guy I would try and hang on to. You have him for another two and a half years. When you steady yourself, he's the kind of guy you want coming out of the bullpen. But I think, again, the Yankees, the Yankees swallowed, swallowed on that one and said, listen, there's, there's so much we can get back for this guy right now. They've got the chances sitting in wait. So they made that move. Now, fast forward, and we're, we're talking about how the team did go forward and do a lot of nice things. But you also saw Batances have his hiccups and have his stumbles. So I think they loaded up their farm system to go forward. Miller was the one that I think was the toughest call for them. There's been some rumblings that the Yankees might consider going after one, two, or all three of those guys in the next couple of years, especially with those who have their contracts coming up, like Chapman and Beltran. Do you see that coming if they might pursue those guys again and maybe try to get them on board? I know Beltran's at the end of his career, but Chapman still has several years ahead of him. The same with Andrew Miller, though his contract is a little bit longer. Do you think they might try and get those guys back if they can? Chapman, yes. I think the Yankees will be one of the leading bidders for Chapman. I think when Chapman left New York, uh, he talked about how he would be open to coming back here. Now, a lot of things can change. The Cubs could win a World Series. He could save four games and be named the World Series MVP, and the Cubs could say, we can't let you leave, and he could fall in love with Chicago and stay there. But the time that I was around this guy, I think he really liked New York. He liked being here. He seemed to acclimate very well to what the Yankees were doing. So I see the Yankees very much being a player and going out and trying to sign him as a free agent. Beltran, I'm not so sure. that They, they need somebody to help provide some more power. I'm not sure if they think Beltran a year later is that guy. He had a terrific four months for them in 2016. Yankees have gotten away or are trying to get away from centering themselves around older players. I could see them trying to add a big bat next year. I'm not sure that it'll be Beltran, to be honest with you. We really got a sneak peek of the up-and-coming talent for the team. As you mentioned, the second half of the season, after some injuries in those trades, we saw Aaron Judge, Tyler Austin, Gary Sanchez, among others, climb aboard and really have an immediate impact for the team. The former two, of course, hitting back-to-back home runs to start their Yankees campaign, and Gary Sanchez putting together a rookie-of-the-year-type season even though he was only with the squad for about two months. And you were a beat writer, of course. For the Yankees, the last time we really saw this major of a move where youth was so prominent on the team, and I'm not trying to compare what's happening now to 1996 and that a new dynasty is going to start in the next couple of years, but do you see some similarities just as the impact of those players that were able to have both in the rotation and in the starting lineup pretty much right out of the gate? I think you're absolutely right. And you you hesitate in wanting to sort of christen or talk about the next core four, but that's what 
every organization wants to try and do. I don't know that the Yankees are ever going to have another core four, and we should probably, you know, not should. You have to throw um, Bernie Williams in there, too, because Bernie Williams preceded the core four, and to have five homegrown players like the Yankees did, and pretty much going right up the middle with Posada, Jeter, Bernie, and then Pettit as your starter, Rivera as your bullpen. Teams would cry to have something like that and have these guys play anywhere from 15 to 20 years. That being said, I mean, Sanchez is legit. Sanchez looks like the real deal. Uh, offensively, I'd always talk to Yankee people about him, and offensively, there were no questions. It was defensively, not the arm. They always thought he had a great arm, but managing a game, working with pitchers, uh, blocking balls, something he still needs to work on, by the way, and just having a feel for catching, that impressed me just as much as his offense when he came up. So you start to look at what he can be and what he can provide. You look at shortstop and second base where Castro and Gregorius are both 26 years old, keeping yourself strong up the middle. Judge and Austin are guys who got a taste this year and, and who've got some work to do, but who definitely look like they will be contributors. Greg Bird was very solid last year. So I think the Yankees, for, for a lot of years, they were the team that they're going to go sign the, the, the exciting free agent. They're, they're going to build that way. And I think they realized a few years ago they've got to build up their farm system, and now they've done it. I, there are a lot of people who are much more expert at following minor league systems than I am, and they usually put the Yankees these days in, in the top five. And they were able to win the championship this season after winning the division last year, so they have been building stuff at the AAA level. It's nice to see that that's brought some success to the major league level, at least early on. And in talking about that, we also have to talk about some of the pieces that will be leaving the team in order for the younger pieces to fill those voids. Mark Teixeira, of course, playing his last game on Sunday after eight seasons in pinstripes. You mentioned the free agent signing bins that the Yankees sometimes went on, and he was part of that coming over with CC Sabathia and A.J. Burnett. Part of that 2009 World Series team, a solid bat, a solid glove, really meant a lot to this team. And you mentioned in your post-game commentary that he's not necessarily in the upper echelon with the Jeters or the Riveras, but he was a very solid player while he was with the New York Yankees. What do you think he meant to the team playing in New York for as long as he was able to play? I'm glad you mentioned that post-game comment because after I'd said that, I wanted to remind people it's 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 sort of like saying you're you're not the Beatles or you're not Elvis. I mean, Mariano right. and Jeter are on a mountain in a mountain in terms, you know Mount Rushmore in terms of recent Yankees. The point I was trying to make was that you can still have had a very strong impact in an organization without having been a guy who is a first ballot Hall of Famer like Jeter and Rivera are. And for me, we grade these free agent contracts and, and so often we'll say, oh, gosh, that was a bad contract. And you look at the Yankees, they, they ate money on the 10-year, the end of Alex Rodriguez's contract. I look at Teixeira and what he did in his eight years as a Yankee, and I say, the Yankees pretty much got their money's worth. I mean, they signed this guy to an eight-year, $180 million contract. He had his best year ever in 09, finished second in the MVP voting, helped them win a World Series. Now I'm sure the cynics will say, wow, one World Series in eight years? Well, one is better than none. I mean, how would you like to be uh, somebody who had a really solid Yankee career? I don't know, like Mike Messina, and never won a World Series. So Teixeira helped them get to that promised land. And looking at his numbers yesterday, and there were injuries involved a bit, but 
This guy averaged 25 homers, about 80 runs batted in, and played gold glove defense. I said this on our post game yesterday. If the Yankees' first baseman do that for the next eight years, they would be thrilled beyond belief that they had that kind of production. So to share a total professional and looks like a guy who is ready for retirement, doesn't look like he's going to struggle at all, uh, ready to move on with that next phase of his life. You also mentioned Alex Rodriguez, another member of that 2009 World Series team that seems to be getting fewer and fewer as the years go on, which is what happens. He also played in his final game in pinstripes this season, and it was an interesting parting of ways, if you will, because people didn't know if he might finish out this season, what his future was going to be, if he was going to try and come back for next year what his role would be maybe coming down into September if they were going to have a playoff run. What were your thoughts on how he ended his time with the Yankees and what they expect for him to be able to do with the organization in the future as well? John, I think what happened with Alex is it got to a point where the word that the Yankees were using internally, their their coaching staff and people around the team, they were saying he was overmatched at the plate. So, once the on-field personnel make that decision and he doesn't have much of a role anymore, then ownership and the front office get involved. And I think the Yankees actually ended up doing a nice thing that almost bit them a little bit because most times when a guy gets released and is told by the team, we don't, we don't want you anymore, you don't get the little, the little five-day send-off or the little four-day send-off. Right. Hal Steinbrenner spoke with Alex Rodriguez. Alex Rodriguez talked about wanting to play at home one more time and his family could see him. And the Yankees granted him that. It got a little muddled because Girardi had said he was going to play all three games in Boston, and he only ended up playing two out of three. And Alex Rodriguez became this sympathetic figure. When, again, look through the annals of sports history. You get released, you pack your bags, and you go. So in, in giving him a little bit of a a send-off, it almost ended up biting them. But then I think the parties all agreed to the way things transpired. Alex got a final hit at the stadium. That moment he had on the field with his kids was terrific. And I do think that Alex Rodriguez will be great, not just good, great as an instructor in this next role that he has for the Yankees. I've never had better, more insightful baseball conversations with a hitter than I've had with Alex Rodriguez. Not just about hitting either. This guy watches everything. He knows what pitchers are trying to do. He studies base running. He studies catchers. He will have an impact on the Yankee youngsters who are smart enough to pick his brain because Alex Rodriguez is, is a, he's a cage rat. In basketball, it's a gym rat. He's a cage rat. He, he eats, sleeps, and drinks baseball. And I hate throwing around the word legacy because I think the media tends to go to that very frequently when maybe they should or shouldn't. But it's interesting with Alex because he's right in the middle of the two sides of the coin when you look at those superstar players from the steroid era. Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds were lucky enough to get coaching positions now and come back into baseball, but they're still not looked at in the best light. 
on the opposite side, you have David Ortiz, who was in some whispers about possibly using performance-enhancing drugs, though never officially was cited for that, who was getting an amazing send-off from Boston, as he should, a bridge and a road and pretty much everything you can imagine being named after him. And he's almost a beloved baseball player, even though he was part of that group of players who may or may not have done whatever they may have done. And Alex kind of falls into the middle of that because there was a lot of controversy a couple years ago when he went on Mike Frances's show and blatantly denied using anything and wanted to sue the league. And then he eventually had to come back and apologize for everything. And we've moved on from that a little bit. His retirement from baseball, leaving the Yankees, could have been a lot worse than it was. It also could have been a little bit better, but it just seemed to be in the middle of what could have been some two extremes. What do you think he'll eventually be remembered for in these next couple years? He'll be around the game of baseball. We'll get to see him a little bit more. He's going to be doing some playoff games now for Fox, which is great to have him back in the booth to get his insight, as you mentioned. But as the years go on, do you think we might be less harsh on the legacy of Alex Rodriguez than we were maybe in a couple years past? John, it's a, it's a great question, and you're asking me to predict the future. And I, I will say this. I, I do think time has the opportunity to be kinder to Alex Rodriguez because you said he's in the middle. I'm going to respectfully disagree with you. He served the longest PED suspension in Major League Baseball history. Right. So he's got a scarlet letter that no other player has. But he came back. He did all the right things in 2015. He was a gentleman. Rob Manford in the commissioner's office, they were using him for appearances. He'd show up at Harlem RBI and teaching kids. I had a conversation with Alex last year where he said, I wish I, I, wish I had become this guy a decade ago. I wish I was smart enough to see where things were going, and I wish I was this guy a long time ago. Well, he can't change that but he can and has changed things going forward. And I think your, your references to Bonds and McGuire are great ones. They have jobs in Major League Baseball right now. They are teaching younger players. McGuire has admitted that he used steroids. Bonds never has, but read Game of Shadows. That's enough said on that. I think Alex Rodriguez has a chance that he can improve his legacy the one thing about Alex, and when you've been around him and you know how much he loves this game, I guess what frustrates you, and it's his life. He made his choices. He's a grown man. I did, a, I did an essay on the Yes Network where I talked about Alex Rodriguez's career. And my, my basic point was he made it more complicated than it needed to be. Right. He was so good as a player, so talented, getting to the major leagues when he's 19 years, 18, 19 years old. This was a guy who could have been thought of as the greatest player of all time. And because of his actions, that will never happen. There's always going to be somebody who says, oh, no, not Alex Rodriguez. He did X. So I think there will be times where he wishes that he had made sounder decisions because he could have been in that conversation. Before I let you out of here by doing some more predictions of next season, let me touch on David Ortiz just a little bit because of the impact that he had on the Yankees. He, of course, retiring after the Red Sox playoff run, however far that goes in October. Is he the biggest Yankees killer that you've ever had the opportunity to see in person? I've covered the Yankees 
I started, I was a beat writer starting in 91. And the two guys that come to mind for me that always seem to destroy the Yankees, David Ortiz and Edgar Martinez. It was almost as if in a big situation, you and I might as well have been pitching. It didn't matter who was pitching for the Yankees, that those guys were going to come through against them. I know when, when Big Poppy was retiring and, Obviously, they had, a, they had a little celebration, not celebration, a, a tribute, or they honored him at Yankee Stadium, and our research people at Yes were so good. I was looking at some of the numbers, and, I mean, the numbers are staggering what he, what he did against the Yankees. I don't know if Edgar piled up as many numbers because he didn't play the Yankees as often, but those are the two guys who jumped to mind for me, just an, an unbelievable ability to come through time and time again. We won't have to mention the 2004 playoffs either. We don't want to ruin our days by doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, it's it's interesting. I was um, I was reading some Boston tweets, and there there are people you you, you talk at, at how at how he helped influence an organization, and, and that was an 86 year hex where they hadn't won, and they finally win in 04. And you know, there's some people in the Boston orbit uh, talking about him being right up there with Ted Williams and maybe even more important than Ted Williams in Red Sox history. And I find that a little hard to believe, but he does have the rings. He does have the clutch play. Uh, Pretty amazing career. To say the least and well-deserved ovations that he's gotten. And we'll see if the Red Sox can send him off with a fourth championship, if you can believe that, after 86 years without one. And like A-Rod, he'll be an interesting Hall of Fame debate discussion. I mean, I have a Hall of Fame vote, and these guys previously who have had any link or any connection or any suspicion to steroids, I have a hard time voting for them. I don't vote for Bonds. I don't vote for uh, Clemens, and, and I, I struggle with that. Well, Ortiz's name was mentioned in this survey testing going back to uh, 03. Right. It's, it's a very slippery slope. It's very tricky. I'm curious to see in five years what kind of voting totals Big Poppy gets because he seems to, more than anybody else who has had any connection to PEDs, he seems to have been forgiven. And there's definitely going to be a lot of difficult conversations to have within, say, the next decade when it comes to the Hall of Fame voting because we're getting to all those players who were part of those things. And we're also going to see if Derek Jeter and or Mariano Rivera become the first unanimous vote into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, you know, Griffey got within three votes of that, and three people didn't vote for Junior. I just have a feeling when Jeter and Rivera's time comes, Rivera, I hate to say this, and I put it in quotes, Rivera will be, quote, easy for someone to say, well, I couldn't vote for him first ballot. He was only a closer. And trust me, I know that's a ridiculous argument. He He was the greatest closer ever, and the sport has changed. It's the sport is now all about bullpens and shutting teams down, but there will be somebody who won't vote for him. And I, I feel the same way about Cheater. There's always somebody who kind of doesn't if if Babe Ruth or Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle weren't first ballot unanimous guys, how can we let somebody be unanimous today? Right. It's it's unfortunate, but that's the thought process of certain people. 
I don't want to necessarily have you predict how this Yankees team is going to do in 2017. We can just say this year they finished with 84 wins, fourth in the American League East, and did a lot more than people expected them to do at the midway point of the season. What do you think are some of the biggest improvements that they should try to make in the offseason and in getting ready for the next season and what they might be able to do to get similar success to this year and do even better? We've already talked about Chapman, John, so let's, let's put a check near Chapman's name. They need, they need some offense. They need some power. Now, where do you get that from? Trumbo and Encarnacion are free agents. You mentioned Beltran earlier. I, I think Encarnacion is going to get paid by somebody big. And I, so that's why I don't know that, that that's a fit for the Yankees. Trumbo, same thing. I can't see Trumbo suddenly signing a one- or two-year deal. I think he's another guy who's going to get paid. And I think the Yankees would almost want a caretaker-type outfielder because they want to see an Aaron Judge, although they don't know if Judge is ready. So then you come back to Beltran, who you mentioned earlier, and I've been thinking about that ever since you said it. And I'm like, hmm, would they would they go a one-year deal with Beltran? He knows the <laughs> terrain here. He's been successful. So they, they definitely need some offense. Even if Sanchez comes out next year and has a very solid season, and to me that would mean 280, 25 and 80. Let's not expect the kid to hit 40 home runs. Even if Greg Bird comes back from his shoulder injury and he's a 270 hitter, 20 and 75, they need they need more offense. They they need a corner outfielder who can provide some pop. Gardner doesn't really give you pop. Gardner and Ellsbury were disappointments this year, by the way. I mean, I, I know I'm not breaking any news here. Both of those guys at the top of the order, they're supposed to be catalysts for the Yankees, and I thought that they had disappointing seasons. So I think it's add some offense. And as far as their starting rotation goes, I think you know the front guy and the back guy. I think Tanaka is your ace, and I think CeCe Sabathia is a very solid number five. Now what happens in the middle? Pineda, as puzzling a pitcher as I've ever seen. Then you've got a bunch of kids, Sessa, Green, Mitchell, Severino. They need a couple of those kids to connect because the free agent market for starting pitchers is so barren that I think they would prefer giving their own kids a shot as opposed to going to sign a Rich Hill or somebody like that. And I know there are Yankee fans out there saying, well, go get Chris Sale. And I don't think the Yankees loaded up their farm system to then turn around and, and, and strip it bare, trade four or five guys to, to go get one player. Right. I, I don't think that's their mindset. I could be wrong. I could be proven wrong in a month. They could trade four guys, five guys to get a Chris Sale. I, I just get the impression that they like their own pitchers enough that they're going to see if, if these kids can produce at this level and they're going to hang on to those prospects for a little while because, John, they don't know which ones are going to hit. Right. They've got Glaber Torres and Jorge Mateo, both now who are single-A shortstops. I mean, Torres is ranked higher by a lot of experts, but I don't know that they're going to just give up prospects and to go get one pitcher. I don't know if they think that's the right way to go today, but we'll see we kind of got the sense that once they started making these moves and going younger and allowing some of their farm system players to have starting roles and to have influence, you almost got the sense that, okay, this is how it's going to be for the next couple seasons. They're going to rebuild. They're going to see what pieces they have and then build around those pieces. 
But then those guys come out and put together the end of the season that they did and almost get this team into a wild card spot. So then the thinking probably switches to, well, maybe we already have what we need. Let's go and get a couple big name players who these players would work well around and see if we can make a shot next year instead of, quote unquote, taking a year off and really working on this rebuilding process. If you had to pick, do you think they lean more toward the latter part where they go out next season and get a couple big name players and hope they might be able to contend? Or do you think they'll be content enough to let this play out a little bit for next season, see what they have going with the younger talent, and then start making some moves the next season when I know a lot of bigger names as well are coming off the books and will be free agents for them? I think they let it play out. I don't. I think the Yankees know their own organization, obviously, and their own players better than anyone else. And as excited as they are about the August and, and a chunk of September that they had, I think they're, they're they're honest about where they stand. And again, I don't see them just rushing to add older, high-paid players. Chapman is one thing. And maybe, like I said, an outfielder or a power type that you could get on not a, not a many-year deal. But I think they still look forward that they want to they go with youth. They want Greg Bird and Aaron Judge and Tyler Austin and, and Clint Frazier and Severino. They want these guys to be part of the next wave. And you start adding player X on a four-year deal, well, where's Aaron Judge playing? Or where's Clint Frazier playing? So it's going to be a very interesting offseason because of that. I think they're going to stick to that philosophy. But, again, these are my opinions. I've talked to some people in the organization, and I try to synthesize what they say and and go forward. But I still think that they didn't have the – the trade deadline moves that they had to suddenly reverse course. They're, they're rebooting, they're, they're pivoting, but they're pivoting quicker maybe than they had expected. I don't think that's going to take them away from the decisions they were making in that, in that area. And the last one for you is regarding the manager, Joe Girardi, because I'm sure a couple of listeners would be remiss if I didn't bring him up. How do you think he was able to ride out this season this year with so many injuries and so many changes to the lineup day in and day out and having to deal with such young players? The team seemed to have that resurgence as the season got closer and closer to the end. And I know they didn't end on the greatest of notes, but overall, what do you think he was able to do as a manager this year? I think Girardi did a a solid job as a manager. You mentioned the injuries. You mentioned, I mean, let's talk about the change in production. In in 2015, Teixeira and A-Rod combined for 64 home runs. This year, they combined for 24. And granted, A-Rod didn't have the last two months of the season. You you look at other players who, who underachieved. I already mentioned Ellsbury and Gardner. I think McCann had an off year. Uh, Didi, solid year. Castro, very strong. Headley, first month of the season, was absent. I think one of Girardi's strengths has always been his use of the bullpen. I did think late in the season there was about a two-week period where I I thought he he had had a bad couple of weeks. I've always applauded Joe for his bullpen strategy, and I thought he had a couple of situations where there was I don't have the games right in front of me, but there was one game where Tanaka was cruising through seven innings. I think it was the game that I mentioned earlier with Patances, September 15th, cruising through seven innings. He takes him out against the Red Sox. He was only at 92 or 93 pitches. They lose that game. There was another game where Sessa 
had about 65 pitches after five innings. He, he pulled him out. And, and I do believe that the fact that they add players on September 1st, I do think that managers, not just Girardi, I do think that managers, when they have more toys, so to speak, in the bullpen, they feel this obligation to use them. And right. matchup baseball takes over. And, you know, those guys you bring up on September 1st, most of the time they spent all year at AAA. So they weren't major league ready before September 1st, and now you're using them in situations where you're asking them to get batters out that you didn't think they were good enough to get out before September 1st. So anyway, I, I, again, I would wrap it up by saying I give Girardi a solid grade. He's got one more year left on his contract next year. He will be back. A lot of people, there's no doubt he will be back. What happens after that? I don't know. I don't know from Girardi's perspective. I don't know from the Yankees' perspective. He's got a son in high school who plays basketball, football, baseball, who I think Joe thinks has a chance to obviously play in college, maybe go beyond that. Does does he want to be around to see that kid go through the process? Because I think his son is, I should know, the sophomore, junior. He'll he'll be in that realm where where obviously schools and recruiters are looking at him. So we'll have to see what happens next year. I think that's a big question for Girardi and the Yankees next year. Well, if anything, the team was able to bring us some excitement into September, and I know a lot of people are disappointed with another season without making the playoffs, but this is just one of those things you have to go through as a franchise, rebuild from the bottom up in order to get back to where you once were, and hopefully some of the signs we saw this season will lead to that in the next couple of years. Jack, I have to thank you for coming on to the show. I know that you're raring to get on a much-needed vacation and break from the game of baseball for the next couple of months, and you got guys will be back at it before you know it. I know the hot stove is coming back November 28th. So enjoy the time off. As I mentioned, I'd love to have you back on to talk about some of your career and not so much on the Yankees when you have some time to sit and relax. But it was a pleasure talking about this season with you, and I hope we can do it again soon. That was my pleasure, John. I I appreciate the uh, nice comments and the questions. You've, You've done your homework, so we'll do it again sometime. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under the same handle at London Bridge. You can find this show and all previous shows on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast or by searching for John Lund Under Artists. The Bridge is also available on several different apps, including SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. You can find clips of The Bridge and listen to the show live every Wednesday night over on SportsRadioAmerica.com and search for The Bridge under the Shows tab. When the show is live, you can also listen on your phone or tablet by using the TuneIn app. You can also subscribe to The Bridge newsletter, which will provide weekly updates and behind-the-scenes information about the next show and who the featured guests might be by visiting londonbridge.com email. And you can also reach the show via email by shooting correspondence to media at londonbridge.com. And once again, you can interact with The Bridge by calling in or texting in the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you might be featured on the next show. 
In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll get into the playoffs of Major League Baseball, take a look at the happenings in the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.